This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. We've recently released a brand new gift set. The gift set contains a 25cl bottle of mead, and you have the choice from three flavours, including our brand new spiced mead. As well as that, you get a small rustic drinking horn, and both are displayed in a nice little gift box. So head over to the website, hornsofodin.com, to grab yourself one. Also, keep an eye out, as we're going to be adding more items and gift sets over the next month. On top of that, we give listeners of the podcast a bonus 10% off with a discount code HORNS10. So remember to use the code HORNS10 at checkout. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello, everyone. Um, now, this time we have a very interesting guest. It's uh, Jonas Lau Markusen um, from Copenhagen. Um, Jonas is a... Um, he's got an MA in architecture and has been working as a graphic designer for, for about 10 years. Um, he's very interested in... Uh, the Viking Age and Nordic art, and he's been working with that for about four years, um, publishing, among others, the, the book, uh, The Anatomy of Viking Art, A Quick Guide to the Style of Norse Animal Ornament. And he's currently also working on a book called The Anatomy of Germanic Art. Uh, Jonas, welcome so much to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I'm excited to be here. I know you're, you're, you're a fan as well as now being a guest. Yeah, sure. I've I've listened to all the episodes, and uh, yeah, I'm, uh, you can call me a fan. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I I have to say, when I first started, especially with you know doing the horns and trying to draw Viking art, your book was one of the first things that I that I came across when I kind of I guess just searching the internet for some idea on how to deconstruct this mess of knotwork that you see. Because I have no artistic background, I, I fell into making horns by accident. It was it was kind of a hobby that turned into a a career, I guess. And then wanting to do more authentic designs, I had no idea where to start. And when you look at a lot of the the Viking Age art, it's so complex and so so detailed that it's it's almost too overwhelming to know where to even start to try and learn that. Um, and I guess your book was one of the only ones I found that kind of started out and gave some explanation at least where to begin. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly why I, I created it, because uh, I just saw this enormous uh, hole in in what was available to people. And I've, I've had the same experience growing up in Denmark and having this uh, partial knowledge of what was available out there seeing bits and pieces of amazing artwork uh, but at the same time not really being able to fully comprehend what it actually was or what was behind the individual piece of artwork and how to connect it with like say a piece of uh, Urna style connect that with a piece of uh, Boer style which is to widely different styles and then somehow connect that uh, across yeah, centuries 
of art history. Uh, and yeah, so that's why I, I started on the journey to to kind of, of uh, piece the yeah the pieces together and and to make it available to yeah to everyone basically. Yeah, because I think is the is there five main art types in the Viking Age? Is that is that right? Um, yeah, that's that's debatable. I have I have categorized seven in 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 the book. Okay, because I know when Luciano was on Luciano, I think he said was there f- he thought maybe four. Yeah, I think he he kind of wasn't too sure about urns. Yeah, yeah. I think he thought maybe that was a a speed version of everything else. I think is what he how he described it. Yeah, I think it's as as Matthias often says, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but but to to make it simple, I I kind of chose to to categorize this. It's uh, the main agenda with the book was to to make it uh, easy to understand and to to uh, kind of make a broad strokes uh, image of of the of the style mm-hmm. periods and how they connected together so i know there's a lot of debate going on about what is each style and what it's about and how it's uh, how it's presented and and what its characteristics are and all that, but but in my book at least it's I've, I categorize it in, into seven seven style periods. Yeah. Am I going to put you on the spot by asking you if if you can name your seven? I guess it just goes so, so it gives people an idea of they can maybe Google it and see check out the different styles because it is so wildly different. You know when you look at ring like probably pronouncing it completely wrong but like ringerick style compared to urn style yeah well i'm gonna butcher all the names so don't worry <laughs> that's why Mateus is here to, yeah. to, to make sure we get them right <laughs> well most of them are named after you know contemporary sites right ringerick and uh and goodness and so on uh so yeah you can you can pronounce those in danish i, I, I don't think yeah, I anybody will. would be offended. <laughs> <laughs> and be offended if you might that's that's fine with me but I'm just gonna go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So basically, the the styles in my book is uh, from the early Viking Age um, and, in some ways, a little before the Viking Age, is the uh, the Boer style, uh, and then going into the Oseberg style. Um, and yeah, let's just name them: uh, Boer style, Oseberg, and then Boer. Um, Yelling style, Mammon style, Ringerige style, and uh, Wunder style. I think that was seven. I think so. Um, and of course, as Matthias said, they are named after some more or less relevant sites. Uh, the Boer uh, style is named after Boer and Gotland, where we have these magnificent pieces of artwork. I think there are some horse harness mounts especially with uh, animal heads with some intricate animal uh, ornaments in them and the Oseberg uh, style is it's that's the one that's the most debatable about if that's even a style really because originally it's I think it's meant to both contain the Boer style and what what I 
Carl Oseberg's style. Because at least in my, what I see is that we have this, this period between the Bohr style and the, the Bohr style where things are not so readily defined uh, as far as, as I know, at least. So uh, in, in the Oseberg uh, burial, we, we have a mix of, um, of Bohr style and Oseberg style. And I kind of uh, lean towards the, the, the Oseberg style uh, items uh, in my description of the style and kind of took that for granted. Uh, because we have at least uh, this, the, oh, what is it? Some of the artifacts is, of, uh, is datable. So we know that, that at least the artifacts are from this time period. So we can say that at least the stars that are rep- represented on, on these artifacts are in fact from this time period between the Bohr style and the, the Bohr style. So whether the style was, uh, was uh, known or used throughout Scandinavia, Scandinavia, that may be a question, but, but at least in, in my opinion, I see some very clear, a very clear through line from Bohr style to, to Bohr style in many aspects. And then we can go into the nitty-gritty and all that, but, but in, in broad strokes. Can I, can I just ask one question here? So, so, mm-hmm. um, what do you think the point is of, of uh, and I, this might be a stupid question, but uh, what do you think the point is of, of the different styles? Um, are, we, are we dealing with um, like simply just like organic developments? You have one artistic style showing up somewhere and then people start just like, uh, riffing on that basically and going on from there or or are, are we dealing with individuals or groups that are trying to put their own distinct uh, distinguishable mark on on a uh, style um, like, um, do you have any suggestions like as to why we have these developments basically yeah, it's it's probably a mix of all of the above. I would say. Um, I think you can you can pinpoint some examples where there might be a case of a particular person. I don't know if he's influencing the art, but at least the 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 Yelling Stone would be a good example of where we have where we can connect a historical person to a piece of artwork. I, he probably didn't do it himself, but at least he commissioned it. Mm. Uh, and the Yelling Stone seems to be a um, a model of of many of the of the Swedish stones uh, in the late uh, Viking Age. The interesting thing about the Yelling Stone is also that it, it you know it takes the artwork that, um, or at least the format of the artwork that we know from manuscripts. And, yeah. and 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 puts it in stone, right? Um, like Carol Bluetooth seems to have wanted to 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 get a message across about it. now the book has come, right? Yeah, and 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 it's a it's a good example because, as you say, it's very clear that that uh, at least this stone is uh, specifically taken 
inspiration from the manuscripts. But when you see the stones inspired by the, the yelling stone, you see some kind of development away from the manuscript, the style of the manuscripts. Because in the Swedish rune stones, you see a development of the motive itself. And in fact, the yelling stone uh, show has three sides. And on one is a depiction of Christ. And on the other one is a depiction of the great beast motive, which is uh, some kind of lion or wolf battling a serpent or snake. And on the third, you have a, a text, a runic text face. Um, but but it's more or less only the uh, depiction of the uh, of the great beast motive that carries through to the to the uh, Swedish rune stones. Yeah, I think I think if I may kick in uh, a, a, a dimension to that, I think what we're dealing with here is um, obviously a non-literate society, and and that means that they will be handling they, they're they're familiar with literacy to an extent, and, and and with letters, of course, because they're you know carving runes. Um, but they're treating them much differently from 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 us, for instance, uh, because we we. we we go to school and we're like raised with text. These people weren't raised with text. They were raised with uh, imagery and landscape. That would be some of the, the, the things that they would be familiar with uh, when they were like sort of like in, in, in the visual part of their mind. So I think that might be part of the reason um, that, that the, the, the beast motif is, is the thing that, 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 uh, people are focusing on and and, and carrying through uh, much more than this uh, uh, the, the the text component component for instance. Um, it looks like the to the and this is just again I'm not an expert on this subject I'm not an art expert but uh, but to me it looks like when we have rune carvings um, on stone um, it is very much a um, a mind that is uh, uh, that is accustomed to seeing a, a holistic image um, and and composing a holistic image um, uh, that uh, that has a relationship to the shape that he's using. Um, I say he it could be a she, but uh, um, uh, and and also um, that shape, the rock itself, um, uh, having some kind of relationship to the landscape it's put in. That's um, that's how I'm I'm sort of reading these uh, rune texts. It's not just about the the, the the text itself. It's about the entire image, um, and I think that you know it's that's kind of awesome because it looks like we have like a window into what I would call an oral mind, right? An oral visual mind uh, rather than a reading mind, um, which you know also gives us a lot of clues to understanding uh, a lot of the. Uh, literature actually uh, that has oral background so yeah that's 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 my my little um thing <laughs> so Matthias, on that so you see a lot of the swedish rune stones are text-based and i guess there's quite a lot of them are, are almost gravestone styles you know they're they've got a message for somebody who died in battle if is it likely that the person who had that commission is able to read and what, why would they not go for like a, an image-based one rather than a text-based, if that makes sense? Obviously, I mean, these stones are pretty, they, they still do have artwork within them, even, you know, they are 
you still have like the knot work of the beasts, but there is you know that very clear room sort of design around them with the you know with the text and then the saying. So the, there's a couple of things that I've noted at least. We have those very uh, ornate, intricate um, uh, uh, carvings where runes appear, for instance, inside of an, a, a snake form, or in in context uh, of a of 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 some kind of more organic um, um, form. And um, so that's one style, right? Um, one way of, 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 of carving runes. And then we also have those uh, really interesting ones that are like just like text all over uh, a surface. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the, uh, uh, the one on uh, Foon, what is it called again? I am I'm blanking on the name. It, uh, yeah, me too. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. The 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 the, the nice big one that's just full of text. Um, we also have the Erland stone, um, um, which um, I, I can't remember which one, uh, but uh, it uh, it commemorates a, a a chieftain who owned land in Denmark or or something like that, and it has a little bit of uh, poetry on it. That one is also just like text surface right um and it is very obvious that uh to me at least it's very obvious that that that, that the carvers they aren't you know accustomed to dealing with organizing text um and, and it's very different from what we see in the uh, in the yelling runestone where the uh, they definitely they know what they're doing when they're they're putting these uh, the text up in these nice lines that look almost as if you just opened a book basically um so so that's that's a uh, that's that's what I've noted of, of, about all of this, and uh, and yeah, I just find it incredibly fascinating because it means that I'm like I can uh, I can look at at what a oral mind is creating here, you know, in terms of stories and narratives as they're working with text as well, and slowly becoming more literate. So uh, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking though is would they would the average person be able to read? read the the stone you know I, you know going down that text route if you know if you've got a stone that is one full side of text who i guess who's the benefit for if it's mainly a like a, an illiterate yeah so so let let me just throw out some numbers here because that's that's really interesting to consider we have some 150 rune stones from norway um approximately maybe uh, between 130 and uh, 150 as far as i remember um they are uh, some of them are actually quite old um from from the 500s um that's the case for sweden and, and denmark too but um um but there's actually a very low number of runestones from norway uh, Denmark has 450 something, as far as I remember, somewhere in, in that ballpark. And Sweden has more than 3,000, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Sounds right. So, um, and in scholarship, we tend to divide uh, by the year 1000. So anything pre the year 1000, we call sort of like the era of Danish dominance when it comes to runestones. And after that, uh, the, the, the era of Swedish dominance. Um, a lot of Swedish runestones are connected directly to Christianization in different ways. Um, it is, they, they're often uh, announcing that somebody has become Christian or, or that somebody is building a, a bridge for a Christian purpose. That's 
that happens a lot in Upland. Um, and, uh, and it looks like the, the, the church was actually promoting uh, that local magnates uh, would build bridges to, 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 to basically improve the infrastructure. Um, and, and this is also actually interesting when it comes to the Yellingstone because it's kind of a similar thing that's happening here. We have Harold Bluetooth building the Rauning Enge Bridge, which is a, a huge bridge uh, across um, this uh, um, floodplain um uh, towards the the yelling complex that he's building too um uh, so there's a lot of things going on with that but um um so the question is like the average person were they able to understand these runes and i doubt that the average person in in viking age scandinavia around harold bluetooth's time uh would be able to um read runes I think it is more likely uh, after the year 1000 that the average person would be able to read runes and carve them themselves. But still, in, in his time, still in his time, it looks like it's connected more to you know, individual specialists and, and uh, 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 the elite of society. It looks like with the very early rune stones that we see, the, the ones uh, um, from the 500s, uh, um, that uh, that it's it's a very small percentage of the population who know uh, how to carve and read runes, but we see sort of like a an explosion in in the capacity to understand uh, rune writing um, towards the the thirteen hundreds. Um, the the interesting thing is uh, the interesting example is, is Bergen, Bergen in in Bergen in Norway, where where we have thousands of little messages that people have just been sending to each other, just carving little rune messages to each other. Um, some are insults, some are, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, grocery lists, <laughs> all those kinds of things. So, so, <laughs> so there, it looks like runes sort of like become, uh, if Bergen at least is an example of, of how we could understand the development of runic script in, in Scandinavia in general. Um, it looks like it, runes become sort of like the, the everyman's uh, uh, written language, whereas the Latin alphabet, on the other hand, is, is very much tied to the church and official business. And the other example of this is Codex Runicus from Denmark, which um, is, you know, a description of uh, the, 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 um, the, um, the border between Denmark and Sweden. It contains a regal list of uh, uh, the Danish kings. We have the Scanian law in there, and we have a little song. Right then, this is all written in runes in a in a you know a book. Um, one of the few books that are, that are written entirely in runes uh, from the medieval period, and this sort of suggests to me that. Um, at that point, we've reached also a point where if you want something to be accessible to the average person um, in terms of text, writing it in runes is, is uh, probably better than writing it in the, in the Latin alphabet because it's only those who have gone through schooling in the church institutions who are reading that uh, uh, um, alphabet. So, so yeah, it, it, you know... Um, the, the question is then, what does it mean to put runes on something, right? 
yeah. a book, sorry, not a book, a, a runestone back in like Harold Bluetooth's time. And you're, when you do that, when you put runes on a, a big fat stone like that, um, then you're basically uh, demonstrating to everybody that you have a powerful capacity. Um, and if you're capable of reading these runes in the, in the middle of the 900s, right, then, then, then I'm sure people will be like, wow, um, this, this, this person has some sort of like initiate knowledge that, uh, that, that, that only few people have, right? This is also what is reflected in the mythology. So it's a, it's a show of power almost. I think so, yeah. Cool. So, um, Jonas, how yeah. how much does the your architecture background come into what you do now with the art? I mean, I'm, I'm more thinking just since we got onto runestones. Um, obviously, they are kind of like a physical, tangible thing. It's not just a piece of art on you know on a piece of paper or or a flat thing. You know, they're in some capacity like a three D kind of monolith almost. So, does the architecture play a part in that kind of looking at them? I think it does, and I think it um, it's something that comes natural and or is obvious to me, uh, or that I take for granted uh, with my background in architecture, maybe, because uh, and I think it ties very nicely into this conversation because they have to be under- understood in their context. Uh, so you have to look at the. Uh, they w- they were not a a poster or something. Uh, how can I say it? It, it? They were landmarks. They were not something ephemeral. They were meant to stand there and to take space and to to be the space, in a way. Um, so I uh, and regarding the art on it, uh, I when Matthias was talking up. I was thinking they were, you can kind of look at them at the motives like, uh, in a sense, like modern logos, that you have this uh, very, uh, you might not understand the text, but at least you you have a clear reference to the image. And I think the, the way that they are so uh, widely used, the same motives in different ways, but, but this, the style, really iterates the same kind of motives over and over and over again. Uh, it kind of tells me that 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 everybody knew what this was about. You didn't have to to uh, translate it or uh, and and that also ties into the way that the artwork were used in in Viking Age Scandinavia and the role of played and I'm not sh- entirely sure how to talk about it but but at least in my um, understanding of it and my experience of it is that and also maybe specifically in the way that it was used on the runestones was uh, to give it this kind of um, Scandinavian or Nordic identity Mm. Uh, they might be Christian absolutely they were Christian and they made these landmarks to to make that very very clear that they were absolutely Christian but at the same time they had this uh, essential Nordic way of of uh, of uh, delivering this message um, yeah. 
That is 100% clear. And not, not only in the artwork, but also in, in the way they were set out in, in the landscape. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I just want to throw one thing in there. So the, the, the motif that you call the beast on, on the Yellowstone, I actually don't think it's a beast. And this is my own personal theory, um, based off of uh, 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 indications that, I'm, uh, that I've been seeing in in a lot of weird materials. The Nordic mythology is one uh, one portion of it. Um, uh, Beowulf is another. Um, uh, later, much later, Danish um, um, magic charms written down in the 1700s also seem to suggest the same motif that 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 it like it um it is active from maybe like the 400s 500s and then uh, you know for the next thousand plus years um, of the stag and the snake uh, i think that's that's what that the beast motif actually is um and it is really interesting because it looks like um this this motif of the stag and the snake or the the stag and the dragon um ties into uh royal ideology in the danish area go to uh beowulf and hrothgas the hall it's called herot which means stag um that is uh you know threatened by by some kind of like uh, um, chthonic uh, um, being that um in some cases can also be a dragon we have this uh, um, in, in motif, as I mentioned, in in, in magical charms, where it's uh, it's just funny that you see like a stag uh, battling a snake for some reason. <laughs> like, how often does that happen in 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 the Danish woods? Or, <laughs> or, or I, I haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so there, there are multiple other examples. There's multiple other, uh, uh, artworks where, where it looks like this is, uh, this is active. And, and I think actually that's, uh, that's a very sort of like a deeply rooted motif that, that keeps cropping up in, in different contexts. So, so what, what's the, uh, what's the origin of that or what's the symbolism? Is it, is it tied to the sagas or, or where, where does it tie into? Say mythology or or any other. So in the mythology, we have it in um, in the representation of the world tree, where you have the uh, the stags uh, in the branches of the world tree, and you have the uh, dragon uh, beneath, um, and then you have an eagle uh, above, um, which has which ties into other symbolism that is also important when it comes to to regal symbolism. Versus Odin uh, showing up as an eagle, and the eagle being a an important uh, bird of prey for uh, rulers in in Scandinavia at large. Um, what we're dealing with, of course, when it comes to the mythology, is uh, uh, compounding myths uh, and motifs and symbols. That's what mm. the mythology usually does, right? If it rests on on a uh, uh, on a 700 to a thousand year old tradition we would expect to see a lot of like different um as symbols and motifs from different eras basically being built up together to what is now the mythology in the 13th century um when it's being written down but um 
so, so that doesn't mean necessarily that oh, just because we find this motif in in say the uh, uh, the description of, of of the world tree Yggdrasil, that it does that it necessarily connects to the Danish royal house or anything like that, but it could be a motif that has basically existed for so long in uh, in the culture that uh, that it makes sense to to transpose it upon this uh, this just simply just like seeped into uh, the myth of the world tree. Um, this is my personal theory on 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 this uh, yelling uh, motif because it's so it, it's it looks like it is so um, um, common. I believe we've also found, and this is actually relatively new uh, discovery from Gripa in southern Denmark. The, 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 for those who don't know, the, the, the presumably the oldest town in Scandinavia where we have uh, trade. Uh, with uh, the English area and uh, the northern French coast and Netherlands and so on. Um, coins, silver coins with that motif on it too. And if I'm not mistaken, they might be from like the middle of the, the 700s. I can't remember exactly. But it's just incredibly interesting and fascinating to consider that that this is such a yeah absolutely and and I can uh, I can recall several other from that time period with with antlers as animals with with antlers so it it doesn't surprise me uh, and just to be clear I, I I don't have any I actually don't have any idea of what that motif uh, represents on the yelling stone or what that's supposed to be. I would hesitate to call it uh, anything at all because I'm I'm not sure exactly how to trace it to anything directly at least. Uh, also because it 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 builds as far as I can see on a several century long history of uh, of artwork and art history. Yeah, I was I was I was just about to ask you from your artist perspective whether that made sense it, you know being a, a stag I, obviously you know i i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> well me neither and and i think it i think that's a really good point to uh because some of the things that are some of the questions that i often get get is that uh, do you have any depictions of a bear do you have any depictions of a raven do you have any you know any depictions of so and so is it for tattoos because i imagine i imagine you get a lot of messages about tattoos yeah a couple a few here and there yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine yeah bring them on um but but i don't do any so yeah no. sorry mm? i would say so stags is something i guess you never really hear much about i mean Mateus, you probably know better than than me but it's not something that's, that springs to mind when you think of kind of norse mythology can you know you get your bears your wolves dragons but stags doesn't seem very prominent ravens you know it's stags feels like it's one that's kind of missed out or left out and i imagine they would have they would have been about <laughs> you know you would have Especially like in in England, you know, you would have had plenty of deer. I mean, do, do do you hear a lot about cows or boars? Because um, they're present too, right? Um, I, I think this might be 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 what 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 we as modern people are a little more fascinated with. It's a, it's a little cooler to to be down with a bear or or something like that than than with a stag. 
<laughs> I, I like stags. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> but, I, I just, so do, do they pop up? Is it quite common that they pop up in the sagas, stories, myths, that kind of thing? Or are they just kind of like a, a mediocre animal that pops up every <laughs> now and then? I mean, they pop up here and there. Um, at the same frequency as wolves, no. Um, but uh, in in significant contexts, yes. So it's not uncommon. No, I mean, so okay. if you if you think about the zoology of the world tree as it's described in Nordic mythology, uh, it's it's very. I think it's very significant that we're seeing snakes at the bottom, uh, stags in the middle. And birds of prey in the top, right? It, it, we're, we're told about these different animals uh, in the poem Grimmismal, for instance, but also in Snellstubus and Zeta. There's there's the, the, the Nidhark, this uh, this uh, worm or, or or snake or whatever you want to translate that to, Ormer, and 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 other uh, snakes down there and uh, around the um, um, the roots. And then you have uh, the branches. You have these uh, four uh, stags. Uh, one of them is called Aethirvnir, Um and a couple of others can't remember what their names are. And then you have uh, the uh, the eagle that sits at the top, and he sends messages down to Nilhurk, the, the dragon or snake in the bottom. Right by use of this uh, squirrel Ratatoskosh, <laughs> and then he also has I a falcon that. sitting sitting between his. Uh, <laughs> I love his the eyes. idea of a little a little squirrel just in the low, you know, go, a gossip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's so so so. There's a couple of things that uh, that we can say about this. It tells us uh, uh, um, that there are certain animals associated with certain planes, so to speak, in our reality. Um, snakes are associated with below ground. Um, the stag seems to then be associated very firmly with uh, the, the plane that we exist on as humans as well. And then you have the the, the eagle and the falcon up top uh, that are associated with the sky. And this association of the eagle or the falcon with the sky is like so prevalent in Nordic mythology and the saga literature as well that they show up all the time. Um, and the, the best examples are, of course, uh, um, when Loki has to go to Jörtenheimer uh, to, to screw something up or, or to fix what he screwed up. Um, he turns into a falcon and flies over there, right? Um, Odin, when he needs to uh, escape Knitbjörk after he has uh, drank all the mead, he turns into an eagle and flies off, and then he's followed by another eagle. This is a very common motif. It also shows up in the sagas. Um, sometimes you have uh, the premonition that two warriors are going to fight, and then that shows up as uh, an, an eagle fighting uh, another bird of prey or two eagles fighting um, or something like that. Um, so, so yeah, this is, uh, this is very prevalent. And um, this tells us that in the mythology, it looks like these Scandinavians associated these different animals with different realms. Wolves, on the other hand, they're continuously always associated with outside the, the, the outer perimeter of, of our existence where everything is unsafe. 
So that's another thing that that uh, that is important. Cows, cattle associated with the infields. So you know it's a three-dimensional image here, where you have on on the uh, um, the, the vertical axis you have the snakes below, the stags in the middle, and the birds of prey in the top. And when it comes to the horizontal space, you have the uh, cattle and other kinds of uh, pastoral animals like uh, the goat hadron, who you know pro- provides mead for feasting warriors in Valhuk. Um, uh, she's at the uh, at the center too, and then outside somewhere in what is called Utangas in at least the Icelandic law codes, that's where you have wolves, the scary beasts. Um, so, you know, it kind of looks like the uh, the Vikings, they weren't p- p- particularly thrilled about wolves. <laughs> Even though everybody nowadays is like, oh, wolves. <laughs> well, yeah, that's because wolves aren't, wolves aren't around and they're not outside your, your house. I'm yeah, thrilled about not, wolves because they're, they're, they're not, not eating your, your pastoral animals. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? if, if, you know, if there was the very much a risk of a pack of wolves eating me or my family, I would think, fuck the wolves. (laughs) Exactly. That's probably what most Vikings thought. So, so Matthias, one thing I want to quickly ask and then link it back to to Jonas is, so dragons in in Norse mythology, they always tend to come across as quite snake-like. And in the artwork, they always come across as snakes. I never really see dragons with wings in in Mm. any artwork. Um, And obviously... When Sigurd kills the dragon, he kills it by it slithering across his his sword. So, how do we ever get kind of like flying dragons? Because obviously, to us now, dragons are these big fire breathing, mm. you know, beasts of the sky. That the you know, it's very clear what a dragon is now. Yeah. To, you know, in modern day. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to kind of ask you to clear that, but then also link it back to Jonas in. And how that comes across and why it's the way it is in, in the artwork. So it's, it's pretty simple with the so-called dragons. Most of them are snakes or worms. That's the word that's used. Ormur. Um, it's not instance, as cool though, is it? Being killed by a worm. <laughs> right? <It's, laughs> we get this earthworm kind of like idea. Um, oh, all I can yeah. think of is earthworm gym now. So, yeah, so the thing is that um, uh, there are flying dragons that show up here and there. For instance, at the end of the poem, Bergelsfeld, which is really interesting, we have uh, uh, uh who seems to be flying out there in the distance. And this is, of course, um, a very old poem. This is presumably the oldest uh, and possibly a, even a, a pre-Christian uh, Eddic poem. So it's from the late 900s, early thousands, that that's where scholarship tends to locate this poem in time, which means that it could very well have been composed by a, a, a pagan, right? Um, it has a flying dragon in it. Um and that tells us that the idea of flying dragons have been, has been present in Scandinavia, you know, uh, from the, the, the Viking age and onwards. Now, uh, most of those so-called dragons that we encounter in the mythology or even in sagas, like the, the Rosal Messiah, 
they are called worms. And to get a dragon dragon, we seem to be using the, 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 the uh, Greek Latin loan word dracar. So it, so there is a distinction in the Scandinavian mind at this period uh, between a flying dragon and, a, and an offline dragon. I don't think dragons tend to fly that much actually to people in, in that early medieval period. It comes later. Um, but it, but it becomes a significant image. Um, and, and it's not an image that is completely, uh, uh um, um, non-existent either. But most, I, I think in most cases, you know, if you asked a, of, of a, uh, uh, a Viking to describe some kind of dragon-like thing, they would be describing, um, a, uh, earth-dwelling, a slithering, uh, snake-like figure instead, which they also used, you know, for uh, uh, like to symbolize ships, right? Um, Olaf uh, Tryggvason, uh, the, the Norwegian uh, king who uh, was responsible for bringing Christianity to Norway, is said to have had this giant ship called uh, the Long Worm, Ormarinangi. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, that that was the main uh, main way that they would uh, conceptualize these so-called dragons, if you ask okay. me. Yeah. So, so Jonas, just tell, like how that comes across in you know in the artwork, and they like, say you never. I I I don't know of any piece of artwork I've seen a dragon with wings. No, I'm I'm also thinking the only. I, I, don't recall seeing any uh, dragons or animals other than birds with wings before we, before the the late late Viking age on the verge to uh, from Unastal to the Romanesque art. Um, so I think that's the only depictions I can recall where we actually see wings and. But but it's curious that that it's uh, the wings suddenly appear on on the same animals that we would uh, define as as uh, uh, snakes or dragons or worms or whatever we want to call them. Um, uh, and another another thing in regards to to the depiction of the animals is that they they were maybe not that. Um, they they were in some kind of flux or fluent in in the way that they, especially in the Urnestal, uh, where we see the animals sometimes with two legs, two front legs, and no hind legs. Sometimes they have no legs at all. Sometimes they have what appears to be four legs. Um, and so on, and in the late period, we see uh, wings on them as well, sometimes. <laughs> and they are, and they are very clearly the Christian. I would say the Christian dragon at that time. Mm, it's yeah. to me at least. It 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 seems obvious that that that's the. I would say that that was the source of inspiration for that kind of depiction mm. of of a dragon would be a Christian one. I think you're right about that. And I think it's also important to, to consider that we need to distinguish between sort of like a, you know, a homegrown, if you can call it that, Scandinavian, um, 
dragon slash snake motif, and then that uh, um, you know more universal Christian uh, motif that that obviously you know refers back to the devil. <laughs> this, mm. But I think it's curious uh, when it comes to to the Viking Age art and the art before that. That and I'm not a historic historian, so I'm I don't know the full picture. But but it seems that um, that the Nordic art is developed in kind of a um, in a constant dialogue with uh, continental European art and and uh, British as well. But 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 it's it's in in a constant dialogue and drawing uh, inspiration from. Uh, European and uh, Christian references, as well as as Roman references to begin with, of course. But but I think there's there's always this um, this interplay between Christian iconography and uh, and and Nordic uh, iconography, and you can and I, it's very difficult to to distinguish. And you all, I, I think you always end up in some kind of weird <laughs> middle place or or model in in a way. Uh, yeah, I mean the, the, the tradition of, of Nordic art is, uh, you know, at least as it develops from around the year zero, is is you know more or less copying and and re redesigning motifs that comes from the south. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if we look at the Bratis, they're a great example of this. But we can also look at the uh, artwork on uh, on on um, on weapons, where you know you you, you compare uh, a uh, a Roman a Roman sword that has uh, a nice naturalistic depiction of of the, the the war god Mars on it, for instance, and then you have the Germanic copy. Which is basically like a stick figure, <laughs> and, and uh, so there's there's a it lo- so it looks like I did it. <laughs> something something that I could do. Yeah, yeah, it, it does, and it, it's uh, it's curious to see that that um, especially when the when it comes to the brackets that the the Nordic versions very clearly depict some kind of emperor figure, but in a Nordic context, and then imposing. Some uh, yeah, Nordic uh, symbolism like birds and yeah, wolves or stags and uh, whatever you you can throw at it uh, and and I think there's these uh, three figure bracts that is interpreted as being the um, what is it, the death of Balder, mm-hmm. um, which is very clearly. A uh, de- derivative motive taken from from a, a Roman uh, coin to uh, depicting something entirely different. It has nothing to do with anything remotely reminiscent of of the death of Balder and and that myth. Yeah, well, see, this is the interesting thing because it, this begs the question: Are we dealing with some really shitty artists here? Or uh, or are we dealing with something else happening? Um, I am I'm more inclined to think that it's something else than just like really poor artists. I think that uh, that what is happening is that that we're seeing an individual identity that they're, they're copying formats, but they're uh, intentionally 
um, uh, uh, recreating the imagery on these uh, these brachiates, for instance, um, based off of how their minds work with visual material. That's um, that's how I would interpret it. For for people who aren't the smartest like me, um, what are we are we talking about? First of all, what are we talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry. And secondly, I know. I guess. I, I guess they were kind of they were talking about like the Nordic taking influence from Rome and doing their own interpretations of it. I assume that's kind of what I got. Um, so I just thought maybe we could pull it back yes. and make it a little bit clearer. Sure. So I don't look quite so. Sorry, I started nerding out here. No, so it's, then, all right, it's all right. Yeah. It, it, it's good to hear, but I think obviously for, for other people, mainly me, um, it, it, just to be able to understand and then look up, look up the pieces of art, so then they can they can put the actual thing to what we're talking yeah. about or what you're so talking the Bratiates, about. The Bratiates are these golden medallions, typically, um, that we find from like the four hundreds. And into I think the latest I might might be around the six hundreds can't really remember but but it, actually in a relatively short period of time they look like they are copies of medallions that the Roman uh, legions would wear on their uh, armor um, so so what it what it basically s- seems like is that we have Germanic peoples. Uh, copying a military art style that has a specific context in in the Roman legions um, and then uh, using them for their own uh, uh, purpose. Okay. Um, so how, how, how long after the fall of Rome would that be? But this is not so much after us in, in, in at the same time and, in, and when it is happening. So, okay. so there's also that has some implications, right? Because the, uh, the the peoples who are involved with the fall of Rome are these Germanic tribes, mm-hmm. and what we're seeing from already from 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 the the year zero and 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 these first centuries after the year zero. Um, is is Germanic mercenaries, right? Um, people coming from the northern German area and the Scandinavian area going to Rome, enlisting in their legions and fighting for them. And then uh, if they survive, they go back and they bring cultural artifacts and riches and a lot of interesting things with them. And this is probably like the origin of like narratives like Sigurd the Dragon Slayer. This, uh, this is the, the idea of the hero who leaves home, goes out into the world, travels around, uh, comes back with a pot of gold after he has slayed a dragon somewhere. Um, so, so, so this is, this is part of the, the development of the art side. We have, um, evidence of, of trade with Rome in, in southern Scandinavia, particularly in the Danish archipelagos, um, from you know the first century, uh, approximately. Um, and uh, Rome is incredibly influential on, on on I would assume pretty much all aspects of life here, everything from mythology to to the artwork to um, when it comes to architecture as well. And this doesn't really um, disappear. It doesn't go away, um, um, even with the fall of Rome, so to speak. Also, 
consider that the fall of Rome isn't actually really a fall in that sense. Uh, and it's not actually that, you know, do we, I think when we talk about the fall of Rome, we're like seeing like these images of these nice little uh, Roman burning cities all over the place. That's not really what's happening. <laughs> we have a split up in different ways. And, and in some places it's more peaceful than others and so on. Um, and and the that that influence continues right so so in the in the late 700s and early 800s when charlemagne has built his nice little uh, western uh, sort of the, the incipient holy roman empire uh, um, uh, in in france and germany uh, his culture is incredibly influential on scandinavia too even if it's Christian, even if it's uh, even if there's ambiguity, because there's obviously uh, a, a religious uh, problem here. Um, I mean, it's very obvious to to the Danes, especially if there are Danes at this point. We don't really know, but we may assume perhaps uh, that there's a Danish kingdom just north of Saxony. That once uh, Charlemagne invades Saxony in 771. And, and later in the 80s, decides to decapitate 4,000 of them um, for, for, for being too heathen for him and all that stuff. <laughs> this is making the Danes nervous, right? Politically, religiously, they're not particularly happy about that. But that doesn't you know, uh, prevent the arts and a lot of ideological aspects, too, from it's like seeping into the north. And, and that's, that's really what the, the basis of, of Scandinavian um, uh, art as well, because, um, from the very early period, when these Germanic tribes were traveling around in Europe, uh, several of them we know for a fact at this point. This has been disputed in, uh, random scholarly debates over the years, whether or not, for instance, the Goths come from Sweden and all that stuff. I think we can pretty much safely say they do at this point. Um, there's no, no reason to, to, to really be, um, discussing that. You know, the question is how they do and, and a lot of other things, but, but yeah, they probably have their origin up here somewhere, uh, up there. Sorry. I'm, I'm in, I'm in the US. I, I forgot that I've been scared of it for a while. <laughs> um, and, and that, uh, that connection to the, to these homelands or whatever you want to call them is still present. In, at least in the form of alliances with the rulers and chieftains and whatever they are up in Scandinavia. And we can detect those connections, those alliances in the proliferation of art actually across uh, Europe. So, so, so this is also, I think, an important part of the development of these styles because it signals of relationships, right? So for instance, you have the Sutton Hoo, um, uh, grave in England. Uh, that has some some artwork that is like almost identical to what you find in Wendel in Sweden, right? And this is just freaking amazing <laughs> because uh, <laughs> this tells us that there is a uh, there's a hot link right there. They're, they 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 know each other. Um, they they are familiar with one another. Um, and in the same way, you can you can identify this elsewhere. And that, I think that's a really important uh, yeah, point to make because we always talk about the beginning of the Viking Age at uh, the sacking of uh, Lindisfarne. And we know that, that the connections were imminent long before this 
this point. So, so it's it's in some ways it makes sense to talk about some kind of a, a, a beginning point at this point, but in a, in many other ways, it simply does not make sense to to uh, to begin some kind of era here, and uh, especially when it comes to the to the artwork of this these eras. There's a very clear through line from uh, 450 or 400 to the uh, yeah 1100s, uh, yeah. and and this dialogue between uh, European areas outside of Scandinavia is absolutely clear in in the artwork uh, made in Scandinavia. Yeah, so I think that's that was beautiful put <laughs> by Matthias. That, and that's exactly what I what I uh, wanted to shed a light on in in this conversation because I think we we miss that often when when we talk about this the Viking Age or, or all the beautiful examples and the popular examples from the Viking Age that we uh, pull forward and uh, and and I I really <laughs> like to shed a light on. On, on on this uh, topic because um, it's it's so much more intricate and it's the connections are so yeah so much more intricate than just yeah the the year uh, one thousand then we became a Christian in Scandinavia and from that then on uh, the artworks were Christian and everything uh, before that was heathen and that's not the case. No. <laughs> uh, from from already from 400 or even before uh, we had a very strong influence on Scandinavian art yeah. uh, and that's not to say that that the artwork created in Scandinavian wasn't inherently Scandinavian or Norse or Nordic or whatever you want to call it but it's in this constant dialogue and uh, inspiration uh, discussion back and forth between the connections throughout Europe and beyond. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, you know, um, if, if we really do want to set sort of like a beginning around 793 when Lindisfarne is, is attacked, uh, I think what we can say is, is what it begins, so to speak, what begins at that point is perhaps more uh, Scandinavian magnate involvement in, 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 in areas outside of Europe in, in terms of military and, and conquest. Um, uh, uh, we don't see a lot of that before. There's a couple of indications here and there. Um, but, uh, but for instance, in the 500s, 600s, 700s, uh, before the attack, uh, we're not seeing a lot of Scandinavian um, uh, attempts at, at, at pushing their borders south, so to speak. But that's, mm. that's what happens in the 800s. That's, uh, but that's that's uh, and tell me if I'm wrong, but but that's in in many ways also a response to to what's going on in Europe. That as you mentioned before, that that the European powers are forcing their way north, so to speak. Uh, so in many ways, that could maybe be seen as a as an as a pushback. I think that's that would be the case for for that kingdom that exists in the Danish area or those kingdoms. There might be more than one at this time. Um, I, I'm not sure if if the the the, the kingdom in West London in Norway is necessarily focused on the same thing, or they they have other agendas. 
Um, I think it's fairly reasonable to suggest that the Lindisfarne attack is is uh, peoples from Norway. Um, but we can't be certain about that. It could be uh, people from the, the Danish area. Obviously, what anybody needs to understand at this point is that those nation states that we know today, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, they didn't exist back then. It was very different uh, constructions and, and different identities. Um, but that aside, it's probably uh, peoples from the, the, the Norwegian area who are attacking Lindisfarne and... and, and um, Definitely, Iona and and elsewhere in 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 uh, in the Irish area and so on. This has also been confirmed by by genetics, um, as we uh, talked with uh, Stella about in a previous episode. Um, Norwegians did go in that direction. That was primarily Norwegians, not only but primarily. And in the same way, it was primarily Danes that went straight to the Dane law, <laughs> um, not 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 exclusively, but primarily. Um, and this tells us a little bit about interests, right? The, 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 the Danish kingdom, uh, or kingdoms from the 800, from the beginning of the 800s and onwards does seem to have a huge military and political interest in the English area. Um, and, uh, this, this is incredibly interesting because it means then that there is a centralized force there that has aspirations to become a empire itself, I guess. And yeah, as you say, this is a response. Um, so I've always been a little, you know, I think it's a little conspiracy theory-ish uh, to, to, to think of this in terms of like a pushback against Christianity. But in some ways, it is also a, a likely thing that's happening because, as I said, Charlemagne literally invades Saxony because, well, he wants to conquer Saxony. He's, he's about conquering. He does this to, to Thuringia, to Lombardy, and, uh, and a bunch of other places in, in, in that uh, um, west, uh, eastern central area of, of, of Europe, um, what is now Germany and uh, Austria and, and Italy, of course. And... He says when he conquers Saxony, well, this is because they're pagans, right? And that sends a signal to all the other uh, non-Christian uh, kingdoms out there, whether they are Slavic kingdoms in the Polish area or they are Scandinavian kingdoms in Scandinavia, right? They're like, hmm, well, maybe we should respond to that. And the Danish kingdom does respond to that, at least according to, this, uh, to the source material that we have available, Vidukin, the, the Saxon um, chieftain or king, whatever we want to call him. I mean, he, he enlists mercenaries from, from, from Denmark. Um, and, 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 uh, receives, uh, help from, from North, right? So that seems to suggest that there is a geopolitical interest in Southern Scandinavia, at least, to, 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 to push back against this, uh, attempt to push the border of the, uh, the, this Frankish empire north. And this continues. Um, Harold Bluetooth, uh, his conversion to Christianity and all that stuff also seems to be a response to this, probably because he got his ass kicked 
by the German emperor at the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there, no there, there are two versions of that story. One is one is the, the, the preferred Danish version, which is like, oh, uh, uh, Harold Bluetooth was convinced by the German bishop Papo uh, that he should convert to Christianity because Papo mm-hmm. could do magic tricks. And then there's the one that the the peoples further north, the Norwegians and the Swedes, uh, and the Icelanders uh, in particular, uh, like, uh, which is the one that tells us that uh, Harold Bluetooth got his ass kicked. Um, <laughs> and this is, this is also because Harold Bluetooth at the time has political interest in Norway. And mind you, the, the, the Danish kings at the time are harassing the Norwegian kings in, in Vestlandet. The southern parts of Norway seem to be tend to be under some kind of Danish uh, control at the time. Um, uh, until Harold Hard Ruler, actually, in the, in the early t- uh, thousands. Um, so this is a, a geopolitical problem to the Norwegians that are trying to establish a, a North Sea Empire or, or an Atlantic Empire, um, which they succeed in doing in the 1100s, where, especially with Magnus the Good, who ends up becoming king over Denmark as well for a period. And a lot of things happen here. Um, but what, what, what this ultimately points at is that the 800s is the beginning of a time where the Scandinavian elite is almost, uh, it's all of a sudden uh, uh, very focused on establishing itself as an elite elsewhere in Europe. And this happens in Normandy and it happens in England as well. And as I've said before, the Norman conquest of England should actually be seen, in my opinion, as an extension of that, because it does look like the Scandinavians get a leg up uh, from the Normans. And we have at least a, a, a minimal uh, amount of uh, uh, place names that are produced from Scandinavian compounds and, and Norman names after Norman conquest. And that's really interesting. Not a lot of people have looked into this, but it suggests an alliance here of sorts. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what's really happening with the Viking Age. But when we look at the art and when we look at trade, what we're seeing is, 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 is a period that begins way before the Viking Age of, of interaction between Scandinavians and these, um, both Germanic kingdoms and also not necessarily Germanic kingdoms in, in what is the Roman area, basically. So, so Jonas. To um to take it back to to art, um, where where does the the Vikings kind of Viking Age styles come from? I guess because I know you've been looking into you know art styles pre Viking Age, but I I don't see anything that's similar to kind of like the Viking styles other than other than like the Celtic stuff. I guess I don't really see stuff that's very similar, like really crazy knot work. Um, so where does it kind of come from? Yeah, and I'm I have a limited knowledge about that because I've been very narrowly focused on on, on Viking HR and Nordic art. So I, I actually lack that knowledge, and I, it really bugs me sometimes because. But 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 there's um, as we already talked about, uh, I th- it it points back to to the idea that that they were of course uh, inspired by 
for example, the, the Bractates were inspired by Roman, Roman art and directly took these motives uh, and, uh, and put their own spin on it. So then you could ask, then where did they get this quote-unquote spin or this style they added to it? And that's, the, that's a good question, I'd say. Um, maybe it comes back to tradition, and that's where I, I may, may have a lack of knowledge because I don't know about the connections to the Celtic areas and how long or tightly they were connected um, and how, how the art looked at, say, the, the 400s. Um, I know there there was absolutely a connection up until the beginning of the the Viking Age, but how and when and why and I, I, I actually don't know. Um, Just a couple of things. Um, again, I'm not an expert on the the art, but a couple of things that I know is that uh, some of the gripping animals um, that we're seeing in the Viking Age and and, and a little before they they look like they are. Um, um, inspired by the uh, the Frankish area, the art in the Frankish area, and then the monumentalism, the rune the stones, and and such, and some of the art on them does seem like it is um, inspired from the at least the, the sort of the the, uh, the relationship to the British Isles. Um, and we also see, you know, in Northern England, where you're at, Daniel, um, we, we do see uh, a, a distinctly Nordic um, uh, art uh, appearing, right? We have the hogback stones. Um, but that's uh, the, late, uh, or, uh, so then we're in the Viking Age, but, but I'm thinking uh, if we take it, do you know, do you have any, do you know anything about, say, the, the 400s or the 500s and uh, the Southern Who burial, for instance, uh, we know there was a connection. I'm I'm just not sure how did the artworks look on the British Isles. So to answer this question about um, the, the connections between Southern Who and 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 the uh, uh, the Vendel area, I think um, I think that art style that the, that uh, old English art style that we're seeing there is inspired by the Frankish and Merovingian art. Um, that that's how I understand it at least, but I'm I am not at all sure. Uh, it could be uh, it could be something else though. Uh, you're talking so, about the Scandinavian style here. Yeah, so I'm, I'm talking about the sort of like the development of um, the, the 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 style that uh, that very much mirrors what what we also see in the Southern Who. Um, I think that it's uh, inspired by by Merovingian art, um, but I'm not not sure at all, actually. Yeah, that that I, I would say the same, but I'm it's I, I heard that read that somewhere, but I I, I don't know, uh, so I can't say speak to that. But but I'm I would tend to agree. And there's also an a Byzantine influence on on the art from from the 500s and onwards, yeah. I think. Yeah. But I think the uh, the interesting thing is uh, to Daniel's point uh, that we we can talk about all these uh, inspiration sources of inspiration, but but every time they are taken back to Scandinavia, 
there seems to be put the spin on them. It's it's not directly copied. It's never directly copied in that sense. Uh, even up in the uh, late Viking Age, where we have this uh, very close connection with uh, uh, European Christian uh, nobility, and and we see this very uh, tight yeah connection with uh, gift givings and. Uh, we find all these artifacts uh, all around Europe uh, coming from Scandinavia. Um, they they always they always have this very Scandinavian style, and it I would I don't know, but I, it seems to me that that it it is in some way a, a kind of scandinavian dna or, or what you want to call it it's it's um it's and and one of the th- things why i tend to see it that way is because many of these motives or or these ways of treating the animals like the the serpents and the insulating patterns and what have you are so inherently uh, Scandinavian, mm. and they they uh, they begin somewhere around the four hundreds and then go all the way up to the old style where where we have this more uh, broader integration with with the rest of Europe, um, also identity wise. So so. Uh, in this period, we have a. It seems to me, at least when I'm looking at the artwork and, I, and when I'm analyzing these uh, ways of of uh, constructing artwork, that we have a very inherent Scandinavian method of approaching uh, depiction of uh, any kinds of motives, and of course, it develops throughout the ages, but. But there's there is some kind of essence, Scandinavian essence to it, that deals around the the insulating patterns and and the the stag motive, or what you want to call it, um, and the the serpents and and uh, birds of prey and and these uh, themes and characteristics. Yeah, that yeah that that's what I was wondering. I was wondering whether it was a case of the this was an art style that they just created and it kind of came from Scandinavia and was born there or whether it was a case of them, you know, looking at other pieces of artwork and then just adapting it slightly, adding to it and then another style born from that. So there's, there's a couple of things that we can identify also from the, uh, the tapestries from Olseberg, for instance, like it's really interesting I've thought of a couple of times at least. It's really interesting to, uh, that these, uh, um, what looks like uh, uh, trees, uh, where we might even have like hanged uh, human sacrifices in them in the depiction, uh, they're interlaced. Um, in, in, and that's, that's, that just seems like it's uh, it's very deliberate. And and I mean, if if uh, if anything, maybe maybe what we're dealing with with the um, clothing in particular is that, that that's where we would probably find um, like in in the, in the textile is where we probably would find sort of a, a perhaps a, a a much older artistic expression 
in, in different ways. I mean, I think you're totally right when you say that, that there is the very distinct Scandinavian identity um, in in the, the artwork. Like they might borrow stuff, they might um, uh, get inspiration from the outside, but then they take it in, a, in their, their own direction. And it's um, it's a uh, uh, there's a spiritual dimension to this that exists both uh, pre and uh, and post conversion. Um, I would I would suggest at least, and um, especially with the interlacing uh, of uh, um, uh, of uh, threads and um, 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 snakes and uh, and whatever 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 it is basically, and. Um, that is, uh, we see this in the mythology too. We see uh, um, in in the use of words, symbols, and motifs in the mythology a tendency to to um, uh, claim that the world is interlaced in different ways. Um, this uh, we 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 see it in in context of fates, where we have the idea of spinning and uh, weaving, right? That, that shows up. But aside from that, we also have uh, words that are attached to the Nordic gods um, that mean uh, those who tie or, or, or the bonds of uh, presumably of the world. We have it in uh, the, 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 the world serpent as well. Um, that, that seems to be holding the entire world together Right, mm-hmm. um, and we have it in, in Loki being tied in in the underworld, uh, so as to prevent Ragnarok. This is really interesting. He's tied in the underworld to prevent Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's there, there are multiple ideas present in uh, the, the this old uh, uh, cultural um, material that we have available to us, uh, written down in the medieval period suggesting um, interlaced uh, relationships across the board in a Scandinavian uh, world uh, worldview basically um, so and and this this is also present on the Yellingstone if, uh, if uh, the, the image of Christ is, is any indicator right he's interlaced here he's not on a, hanging on a cross he's interlaced in um, uh, what looks to be plant material or something like that and and the same thing with the stack with every motive, uh, and there's there's also there's there's so many layers to it, uh, and I think it's it's of course some of the things that the aspects that make Viking art so appealing. Um, it's also another point is that it's ex- extremely enigmatic the way it's executed and. And these uh, weaving patterns are laid out, and even in some of the um, the more very Christian, uh, like the uh, Bamberg shrine and and that stuff, they have these ways of making. Then, uh, in modern days, we would make it very clear what the message is, but but uh, but in this culture, it, it seems to be a very dis- distinct point. To, to not reveal what the message is. Uh, and we see it throughout. Uh, and, and the weaving of things speak to that too in, in some ways. 
Um, and I think it you you can tie it into the way Kennings work and in the language and, and there's all sorts of ways of um, of like um, uh, wrapping things up in themselves in so many ways and we could do it a complete another episode just uh, going through <laughs> all these aspects but but yeah it's fascinating. No, you're totally right. Though it's a, it's it, Kennings are a great example of how uh, you you're basically entangling language and words too. Um, and and I was just instantly reminded of uh, those parts of Howlmall that t- talk about uh, rooms, uh, where uh, Odin um, says that you must find rooms. Now, where are you finding these rooms? Well, that's a good question. If rooms represent meaning. Right then, then, then this could be in that interlaced style, just as much as anywhere else. We we know from the poem Sigdrivomal um, that uh, that you can find runes on on the, on the nails of the Norns and you know <laughs> in all kinds of funky places uh, on the prow of ship. So so there's definitely something to that. That that's um, you, you're totally right. That there's always layered meaning in in, in all of this, and and there's a it's almost as if uh, the artist is uh, commanding you to 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 look for for some kind of expression here that's that's not necessarily expressed at all. <laughs> yeah, and uh, just to make a point of it, uh, to go back to to the early uh, uh, eras of the art or the early stars, we see. Um, I think yeah, it's I think yeah, it's in it's in the four hundreds too. The uh, where we see these um, uh, single animals mirrored, making out a third animal. If you understand what I'm describing, that that uh, the two animals come together and constitute a third uh, animal face or something. So you can't you you may perceive it as a animal head at first, as as a single animal head, but a Closer look, you you discover that there's actually two animals, and, and then there's three, and and when you take a look at the bodies, then they are there are all kinds of animals intertwined in them. So so you can't you can never be sure of what you're seeing, and combine that with these very clear authentic depictions, uh, portraits uh, intermingled with the art. Uh, you have this very riddic, uh, enigmatic uh, thing um, hinting at, uh, yeah, the uh, the characteristics of of a Odin figure or a Loki figure, mm. this um, magic being convoluted and not revealing all to you, but but having uh, infinite layers of wisdom. Uh, intrinsic in him if you just kind of uh, know how to decipher this language or pick up the rune so to speak um, yeah no, I mean, it's, it's true <laughs> I'm, I'm more confused about Viking art than ever <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want I wanted to just throw one last thing in there about, uh, about all of this and this has to do with the aesthetics of modern Scandinavian art and also um, uh, architecture um, I forgot his name, but uh, there's a 
a prominent um, architect who has written about Scandinavia and uh, using the um, um, using the, the interplay between light and shadow. Um, his uh, his book is called Nightlands. Um, for anybody who's interested, I can't remember his name for for, for the life of me. But um, but he he argues that the Scandinavian um, and that's, that doesn't matter whether or not you're or it doesn't matter if you're in, in Denmark or Norway or Sweden or, or uh, in the far north. What we always have is is a, a sort of like a uh, a prominence of shadow in in this the the the, the Scandinavian landscape. Um, we have the uh, f- uh, the Norwegian fjords and forests are, for instance, a good example of of how there's uh, there's constantly something breaking the light and introducing shadow and introducing some kind of obs- something that is obscuring the uh, the vision. Uh, this also happens in the Danish landscape, even though it is much flatter. Uh, and uh, um, but we have this thicket um, that is present. Um, and and it, it, I, I'm not going to sort of sit here and 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 claim that there is that this was the, the thing that people were also considering when they were making art back in in the Viking age. But it is interesting to see that that there is um, there is that constant uh, play uh, between uh, being able to see clearly and then being uh, having your vision uh, um, obscured by by um, by the thicket uh, that that shows up in uh, in the in the woods, in the brushes, in the bushes, and in all that stuff, um, in in all kinds of contexts, all the time in in the Scandinavian landscape. I don't know if that resonates with you, Jonas, but um, absolutely. But and I think uh, we could we could again take another episode just about that because <laughs> yeah. I think uh, what it what it reminds me of is. Uh, a thing that also speaks to me about the Viking Age art and Viking Age uh, mythology and all that is that uh, in contrast to maybe the more Christian myth and religion, there's this notion that um, uh, dark and light is is part of the... uh, yeah, it's part of life. It's in integral. It's not. Yeah, you can say it's it's opposing forces, but it's. But there's also this notion of dark and light coming together to create new things to create life, if if you will. Um, and on its face, you can you can talk about that uh, in regards to the Asia and the Jotun and and how their interplay is is yeah playing out. Um, so yeah, just to give a short answer that that yeah, I think there's definitely something to it that this theme is also playing out in in architecture and in in throughout the Scandinavian identity, so to speak, and how we well, let's be honest, it's it's we're living this every day in the in the way that that uh, we have the seasons and we're living very close with the seasons mm-hmm. so we have the it's just it's just a part of our experience to to live with the shadow and 
to to uh, live with the with the what's it called the the space in between the shadow and the light. Um, yeah. And of course, you can you can go on about all kinds of uh, uh, discussions about how that plays out and how that could be interpreted and how that could be seen in architecture and art and in the mythology and and all that. But but I think that's yeah very clear to me that that's integral to to the Scandinavian experience, so to mm-hmm. speak. Perfect. Yeah, I mean. Let, let's wrap this one up. Um, like I say, we can always do this again and speak about all the other things we could touch on. Um, yeah, yeah, we, so didn't, just, we thank- didn't get to nerd out about the, the uh, building styles, the Charlebois houses and all that stuff. We will have to do that. <laughs> we will, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, thank you very much for, for coming on. If you just want to let people know yeah, where they can find find you find your book because like i said the book is 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 excellent it's it's certainly a good starting point for people to really try and get their get their heads around these different styles and and get some basic understanding yeah sure uh well it's easy you can you just go to my website jonaslaumagusen.com and uh, you can read it online or you can uh, subscribe to my newsletter and get a pdf version of it if you like to and so that's straightforward and as mentioned before, there's a, a prequel to the book coming. Coming, I don't know why, when, because it's it's a beast to work with. But <laughs> but uh, it's coming. It's uh, it's in the works. And you can kind of, if you go, if you look at at the uh, the chapters on my website about Viking HI, there's a link to to the coming chapters there as well. And it's as I said, a work in process. So. So just go have a look. Yeah, absolutely. Is your Instagram just your name as well? Yeah, it is. So um, you put put pieces up there that you're working on. Yeah, that's. I think that's uh, that's the main channel too. Yeah, the website is of course my base, and and then I have Instagram as a secondary, and of course my YouTube channel, where I okay. post uh, some uh, tutorials and and what have you. I think if you search for my name on YouTube, it'll, it'll pop up. Uh, but otherwise, in in the bottom of my web website, you'll find a link to to it. And I think I'll, I, I've also posted a couple of videos on on the front page of the of the website. So just go there, and and you'll find it. I'm and I'll sure. find everything from there. Yeah, yeah. Matthias, where can people find you? You can always find me on Instagram under my name. You can find the Nordic Mythology channel um, on Facebook, where I occasionally post uh, <laughs> links to to our uh, uh, podcasts. And um, you can also find me on my website, nordicmythologychannel.com, where you can read a little bit about me and also, you know, uh, the occasional blog or stuff like that. So, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, obviously you can find my company Hornswording at www.hornswording.com. You can find me personally at Daniel underscore Farrand one on Instagram. Um, I mean, yeah, if, again, if you if you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to look at the Patreon. And um, we got a bunch of cool stuff on there. We just recorded Inglinga Saga uh, the, the other day. I'm, I'm trying to learn to pronounce it. 
Um, so that's a you know it's a bonus <laughs> episode for for people who support us on Patreon. So please just take a minute to go over and have a look on there. Um, they say it really helps us. It helps us get better equipment. Taste the spice of new lovely headphones that you know you guys have helped us, us buy. And a microphone. <laughs> and a microphone. Yeah. All we need now is cameras or better cameras. <laughs> That's true, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so thank you to everyone, you know, the, the supporters, supporters. And if you can't support us on Patreon, even if you can just take a couple of minutes to write as a, a you know, a review on wherever you listen to the podcast, you know, that helps us get up on the on the charts as well, which is always nice to see. Well, perfect. Well, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Jonas, for joining joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you. you for having me. It's been a pleasure. No problem, anytime. It certainly has. Speak to you later.